Jesus and his life on this earth was on a mission. He had one singular focus. Jesus Christ came to this earth in order to establish God's kingdom here on earth. That's the reason he was born. It was what he talked about. It was what he taught. It was what he preached. It's what all of his healings, what they had to do with. It was the reason that he died. The reason he died was to establish God's kingdom. Forgiveness of sin is subsumed under that. Okay? The reason he lived, existed, taught, ministered, suffered, died, was buried, rose again, ascended into heaven. All of it was for the singular reason of establishing God's kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. So today is the third and final sermon of the Beatitudes. And the Beatitudes form the introduction to Jesus' most famous sermon. We've called it in English, the Sermon on the Mount. Now today we're looking at the final pieces of his introduction to the sermon. The final Beatitudes. Matthew chapter 5, verses 8 to 10. And notice, notice where the Beatitudes Begin. Notice where the final Beatitudes begin. Matthew chapter 5 verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now this Beatitude. The eighth Beatitude. It rounds out the list. Like the first Beatitude in verse 3. There are 12 words in Greek. Depending on your English translation it could go either way. But what you need to know is that. As they were originally written, it's the exact same number of words as the first beatitude, 12. All of the ones in between are anywhere between 6 and 10 words. So the first one, the first beatitude, the eighth beatitude, they outweigh the other ones just in the volume of words. And and so that gives them kind of um, like, like, like two anchors. But also notice the first and the last beatitude have something else in common. They are both present tense, right? Blessed are the, what's the first beatitude? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, is present tense. The, la- the eighth beatitude, blessed are the, those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And then every beatitude in between is future tense, They will be comforted. They will receive mercy. They will see God. So first and eighth beatitude, 12 words. Everything in between, smaller. First and eighth beatitude, present tense. Everything in between, future tense. There's one more thing the first and eighth beatitude have in common. The most important thing. What is always the most important thing when it comes to Jesus? The kingdom of God. First beatitude, theirs is the kingdom of God. Eighth beatitude, theirs is the kingdom of God. So what's going on here? Well, by connecting the first beatitude and the eighth beatitude through the tense of the verb, through the number of words, through the subject, the kingdom of God, what's happening is that the first and the eighth act like a clamp to hold all of these others together. Do you see? In in literature, this is called an inclusio. 
right? It's a literary technique where, where you have something at the beginning, you have something at the end. Uh, the rhyme of the ancient mariner is one of the most famous inclusios. The way it begins, the way it ends, it acts like um, bookends on a bookshelf. But I want you to think of it this morning like a clamp holding everything together, the whole list. Now, what this is showing us is that the Beatitudes, each one of them is like a singular island in an archipelago, right? So each one of them is connected to the other below the surface. What you've got going on in the Beatitudes is they're all talking about the same thing. And each Beatitude is like the island at the peaks out of one of the the peaks of the mountain that is this massive subterranean sub under the under the waves of the ocean this massive mountain and it peaks up in these places but they're all connected together and what connects them all together they are all individual expressions of life in the kingdom now again and again as we read Matthew's gospel This is the drumbeat. The first thing we're told uh, about Jesus' preaching is back in chapter 4, verse 17. The, the, The first time we're told anything that he says, Matthew 4, 17, out of his mouth from that time Jesus began to preach, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That's the initial summary of Jesus' teaching. And then in chapter 4, verse 23, we're told this again. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom. Look, the gospel is the good news that the kingdom is here. The gospel is not the plan of salvation. It's the gospel of the kingdom. This is Jesus' drumbeat. So the kingdom, it is the lens... That Matthew, the author of this gospel, gives you for when you read the Sermon on the Mount. You must read it as connected, as seen through the lens of the kingdom. When you think of Jesus, you've got to think of kingdom. And establishing kingdom, that was his purpose. Now, what is this kingdom? Well, I've said this before, but we've got to say it over and over and over because so many of us are held captive by a totally different view. And the coin has to drop. You've got to begin to see this as the issue, as the framework, as the paradigm. So I'll say yet again, what is the kingdom? It is God's dream society here on earth, our world healed God's reign, God's goodness, God's love filling the earth like the waters cover the sea. Life here, every aspect of it, our relationship to the land, our relationship to one another, our relationship to the Father. Every aspect of life here under the benevolent rule of God. And what God are we talking about? Not a vague, generic, divine force. We're talking about the God revealed in Scripture. The God who is the creator, who is filled with love and his agenda is nothing but goodness and wholeness and peace and joy and justice and beauty and truth and gentleness. It's a society that is a community that's characterized by real life 
and real freedom and love and fruitfulness and flourishing. That kind of society on earth, that was Jesus' singular reason for coming. To establish that society here. So when he starts his first big sermon, he starts by describing life in the kingdom. In verse 10, he wraps up the Beatitudes by reminding you this is the deep subterranean mountain that must inform everything else. And so when you read the Beatitudes from Matthew chapter 5 verse 3 to verse 10, you get a neat tidy package on an aesthetic level, perfectly balanced. Twelve words, then smaller beatitudes, then twelve words again. Present tense, then future tense, then present tense again. Kingdom of heaven, then other things, then kingdom of heaven again. So on an aesthetic level, the aesthetics of literature, perfectly balanced. On a conceptual level, perfectly balanced. And then you get verse 11. Where everything changes. It's no longer a simple two-phrase beatitude, right? All of the beatitudes up to this point. First line, blessed are, blah, 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 you know, pure in spirit, pure in heart, poor in spirit, merciful meek. Second line, the way in which they're blessed, for they will be comforted, for they will see God. These reasons. You get After the package is wrapped up, you get another beatitude, and it totally explodes that formula. Now, instead of two phrases, you've got seven phrases. You thought 12 words was the maximum. Now there's 34 or 35. There's one word that we're not sure if it's original or not in, in Greek. So suddenly, we've got three times the number of words. We've got more than three times the number of phrases. And furthermore, there's another weird thing going on here. All of the Beatitudes, as you click your way through them, they shift subject. First Beatitude, the subject is the poor in spirit. Second Beatitude, the subject is those who mourn. Third Beatitude, the subject is what? The meek. Then what's the next subject? Those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then the next one, the merciful. And then the next one, the pure in heart. And then the next one, the peacemakers. And and then the eighth one, the persecuted. And then all of a sudden you think you're done. Shifts, lots more words, lots more phrases. But doesn't shift the subject. Once again, revisits the subject of persecution. Not a new subject. Now, what's going on here? Well, since the 8th and ninth Beatitude are generally speaking about the same subject, the devil is in the details. The, the trick, the key to understanding what's being said is to notice how it changes the subject ever so slightly. Now, the ninth Beatitude, speaking in terms of literary technique, is a chiasm. Okay, a chiasm is a technique where you've got a phrase, let's call it, it's dedicated to subject A, and then another phrase dedicated to subject B, and then another phrase dedicated to subject C, and then the next phrase goes back to subject B, and the next phrase goes back to subject A. So it looks like this, all right, A, A, B, B. Center of the tip of the spear, C. Okay? Now, in a chiasm, that is a, that's an author's literary way 
of making a point. And what do you think the point is? Graphically speaking, it's C. And that's the right answer. So what, what we've got is an oral culture that had developed very visual ways of structuring literature to make a point. Now, look at the chiasm. There's an opening line. Blessed are you. The closing line, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The B category, you have a couple of negative statements when others revile you, persecute you, utter all kinds of evil against you. The B category, second time, is a couple of positive statements. Rejoice and be glad. The C category is on account of me. It's the first time in all of the Beatitudes, Jesus inserts himself. Okay? Now, hold that thought. Because there's something else going on here. And it's really quite elegant. Some Bible translations capture the second thing I want you to pick up on. My translation, the ESV, doesn't. It obscures it. Look at the phrase right at the end of verse 11. On account of me. Now, in its original language in Greek, this phrase is Anakin Amoy. Anakin Amoy. Anakin, on account of Amoy. What is that, Sarah? Me. Me. That's right. Now, Sarah knows Greek far better than I do. Now, look at verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Do you see that phrase right in the middle, for righteousness sake? Your Bible might translate it differently. In Greek, here, here it is, two words. Anakin dakaiosunes. On account of, any former Presbyterians here? Do you know what dakaiosune is? <laughs> righteousness. On account of righteousness. Now here's what I want you to pick up on. In a very elegant Slip. In verse 10, Jesus says, persecuted because of righteousness, on account of righteousness. And then when he gets to the second visit of persecution, he takes out the word righteousness and he inserts himself on account of me. It's, 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 it's slight, but it's very deliberate. Now. In verse 10, persecution is for the sake of righteousness. In verse 11, persecution is for the sake of Jesus. And that is scandalous. Because you see, Jesus was unique in many ways. But in one way that he was not unique is he portrayed himself as a religious teacher among the Jewish society. A rabbi. And it was a common thing in Jesus' day for a rabbi to talk about persecution because of righteousness. But Jesus put himself in direct parallel to righteousness. In the eighth beatitude, persecuted for righteousness. In the ninth, persecuted for me. Jesus is demanding more than any rabbi has ever demanded in the Jewish culture. In fact, Jewish teachers typically counseled their students to avoid all suffering that was not for the honor of God and his law. And, all the, and they would expect students... 
to be willing to suffer for God. Because we heard this great psalm that Stephen read to us. This is deeply rooted to suffer for, deeply rooted in the Jewish, in the Jewish history, to, to suffer for God and his law. But never, ever would a rabbi expect his students to suffer for him. We have no account of this in any piece of historical literature of any rabbi ever asking someone to have such radical allegiance that they would suffer because of them. It's one thing to pronounce blessed those who are persecuted because of righteousness and devotion to the law. It is another thing entirely for Jesus to get finished with the, the Beatitudes and then to plant this flag in the ground. Now, one more thing. And then I'll tie these three pieces of data together. The first, the center of the chiasm is what? Me, Jesus Christ, on account of me. The second is that he... He put himself in parallel to righteousness. That the the deep meaning of righteousness and the truth of Jesus are the same thing. Now let me show you one more thing. Look at the end of verse 12. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now, in this phrase, who is being put parallel To the Old Testament prophets. That's a real question. It's not a preacher question. Who? Okay. So these are the disciples. The followers of Jesus. So they persecuted. They're going to persecute you. They persecuted the prophets. Who is not parallel to the prophets here? Jesus. They persecuted the prophets because the prophets had exclusive, radical, fanatical loyalty to God. And Jesus says, when you have exclusive, radical, fanatical loyalty to me, who has Jesus just put himself on par with? God. Christianity... And Islam share much for which we should be grateful. All of the world's great religions have, have significant truth. If they didn't, they wouldn't last. But nowhere in the Christian scriptures is Jesus equated with the prophets. He is always More than the prophets. Do you see that Jesus gets to the end of these radical beatitudes. And then he takes a giant leap. And he riffs off of the subject of persecution. To make some astonishing claims. To claim that the kingdom centers on him. To claim that loyalty to him will not only lead to persecution, it's worth it. Now look, if he is not who he's claiming to be, that is an immoral thing to say to somebody. 
It is immoral. It is manipulative. We prosecute people in America when they exert that level of control over somebody else. Jesus is making a statement here. He's saying that God's dream society is dependent on him. The healing of the world is dependent on Jesus. Remember, 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 the whole thing is about the kingdom of God. Jesus is saying in the Beatitudes, God is attentive to your suffering. I hope that you've read the Beatitudes and been deeply comforted. You mourn, God knows about it. You suffer, God knows about it. You're meek and you get kicked in the teeth, God knows about it. You fight for justice and it leads to your deep grief. God knows about it. We have this beautiful image of God, this God who is loving, yes, dangerously loving, that he knows about your needs and he offers to help you when others despise you and reject you. And he offers care for, he cares about injustices. He cares about you when you suffer disease and death. He is healing this world. God's kingdom will come. There will be real life on this earth. Void of all suffering. It will happen. It is happening. But Jesus is not stopping there. He's pushing you. And he's saying to you. He alone can free you from the evils And the demons that enslave you. That the joy of the kingdom. The good and gracious healing of this world. Depends on your exclusive, fanatical, fundamentalistic loyalty to Jesus Christ. So I say to you. God is saying to you. In the scriptures we've heard read. He's saying what he's always been saying. Repent. For the kingdom is at hand. You want God's dream society. You want it to touch your life. You want to have experience of it now. An eternal experience of it. When Christ returns. You want that. Then submit to King Jesus. Bow your knee and yield absolute exclusive control of your life to Jesus. Look, there are many people who are unquestionably poor and needy, but they do not cling to Jesus. They are not blessed. Do you see how these amazing beatitudes with their pronouncements of comfort and inheritance and satisfaction and mercy and seeing God himself and being adopted as his children. Do you see how Jesus closes out these amazing pronouncements, this incredible life, this this vision of our deepest longings, the stuff of our truest myths, the stuff of our greatest stories, the primal collective human awareness of the way things were made to be. Do you see how Jesus takes the eighth beatitude? attitude explodes it around himself 
Now many people grieve over their afflictions and their misfortunes. And many people are utterly impoverished and enslaved to lack and to need. And many people are, are, are broken through injustice. But here at the end of the introduction to his summons, Jesus says the only answer to that is to make him your king. This is the difference between the disciples and the crowd. The crowd admired Jesus. The disciples had declared absolute loyalty. This is the difference between admirers today and followers today. It's radical, fanatical loyalty to Jesus. This is Jesus stopping, saying to the disciples, you've done good. I asked you to leave everything. You left it all and you followed me. You've got to face the decision again. This is Jesus saying to the disciples, now is the time to once again express your loyalty. And he does it with the theme of persecution. Which we don't have time to unpack the way I just unpacked the center of the chiasm. Do you know that this theme of persecution only grows in Matthew's gospel? Jesus says, if anyone wants to follow me, he has to take up his cross and follow me. One time Jesus said, I'm going to the cross. And Peter said to Jesus, oh, no, 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 no. You don't have to do that. And what did Jesus call Peter? The devil. It is satanic. To try to divorce the kingdom from suffering. That's what Jesus said to Peter. You know what Jesus was saying to Peter? He was saying, if you're not willing to be so loyal to me that you will suffer, you're not following me. The Beatitudes, the center of them is Jesus Christ and suffering for him. You're not, if you're not willing to suffer for Jesus, you're not following, you're admiring. Now, I really do wish we had time to dig into this. It's not suffering in general. It's suffering for the sake of righteousness. Remember how I defined righteousness a couple of weeks ago? It means two things in, in this passage. It means justice and personal morality. Personal behavior according to the standards Jesus set out. Now you just keep reading the Sermon on the Mount. What are the standards he set out? Such radical devotion to him that you're called a fanatic. That's the next paragraph after the salt and light. Refusing to give free reign to your anger and to retaliate. A sexual ethic. An ethic on all the pelvic issues. Abortion. Homosexuality. Divorce. An ethic on those. That says you won't divorce. You will discipline your sex life. In line with the kingdom. The way you treat your enemies. I mean, you just keep going through the Sermon on the Mount and he ratches. And you know what? If you live that way, 
you'll be persecuted. And you know what persecution is in the Sermon on the Mount? It's not merely suffering. Suffering is glorious. Everybody has pity on the sufferer. It's suffering plus rejection. Without rejection, it's not Christian suffering. See, it's ignoble to suffer despised. It's glorious to suffer admired. The kind of persecution Jesus is talking about. You know what the cross is? The cross is not suffering in in theory. It is the suffering of a rejection. Now, are you willing to be rejected? To be thought a fool, an idiot, unenlightened. Do you have such a radical loyalty to Jesus that adults, you are willing to be thought ill of? Teenagers, are you willing to have the way people like you or not like you? For that not to matter to you. Out of your loyalty to Jesus. See this is what Jesus is doing. This is the flag he's planting. To follow Jesus. Is to give him absolute loyalty. And we know that. When it comes to how you handle. Loss. Suffering. And rejection. Is that the case with you? Now, if it's not the case, why? I mean, this, this, is, this is serious stuff. Why, why are you not willing to give Jesus that level of loyalty? Is it because you're not convinced that he is God in flesh? I mean, if you're not, then don't. <laughs> because this is abuse if it's not. Why are you not willing to give him radical, fanatical, exclusive Loyalty. Why are you not willing to be embarrassed for your sexual ethic? Why are you not willing to be thought wrong of? Blessed are you when people revile you, right? Say things about you that are not true. Homosexuality is a sin. There is no way for me to say that in America and not be thought and people not to think that means I don't like you if you are gay. There is no way to express the Christian ethic on sexuality and not be viewed as arrogant and mean. So stop worrying about it and just express it. <laughs> Don't look for the way to soften it. I mean, I mean you, if you've got 30 minutes to, to say, no, I still like you. Then do that. But if you don't have 30 minutes, you still get... Look, if we're not willing to say this, if you're not willing to say abortion is murder, and you know when you say that, people will think you're mean. And they're wrong. That's what it means to be reviled. They will think wrong of you. There are plenty of, of issues... That at different societies, at different moments, following Jesus means you will be misunderstood. The two fundamental issues in America today that you will be misunderstood on are those. The gay issue and the abortion issue.
Now, is the reason you haven't declared loyalty to Jesus because you love your image and you can't bear the pain of rejection? Is that the reason? Jesus is pushing you. And he's saying, whatever the reason, deal with it. Listen, you can't rest on your laurels. The disciples were not allowed to rest on their laurels. They had already left everything. And now Jesus brings this up. Didn't leaving everything, wasn't that enough? When you walk with Jesus, there comes these moments where he stops and looks at you. And he invites you to carry on or not. If you're not radically, exclusively loyal to Jesus, please, would you reach out to me and let's talk about it? Let, let, let's talk together. It, 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 not just me, there's plenty of people in this room. If, if you know that at the end of the day, you're more loyal to yourself than you are to the king... Would you please call me? Let's have coffee. Let's talk. I'm not going to try to manipulate you. I'm not going to try to force you. Jesus didn't force the disciples here. He didn't manipulate and coerce them into making the decision. And I wouldn't do that to you. Please, if, if, if you're just not convinced that Jesus is who he says he is, if that's what's holding you back, let's talk about it. Let's look at the evidence. Let's see where, the, let's give you a, a good chance of weighing the evidence. Where are you? For those of you who are being persecuted for Jesus' sake, you are blessed. Count yourself in the noble company of the prophets. And you are blessed because there is a reward in heaven. You know what that means? It means Harry Potter had money in Gringotts. It means that the, the, what were his adopted parents, the Dursleys? It means that they lied to him and he didn't know it, but it was there and it was secure. It means that your reward is more secure than Gringotts. Your reward is in heaven. And one day when heaven comes to earth, it will be given to you. And in the meantime, it is secure. It's coming. If you are being persecuted, you are blessed. You're in the noble company of the prophets and you have a sure reward in heaven. If you are not loyal to Jesus, please, please come to Christ. He will bless you beyond your wildest dreams. Let's pray.